Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Anyone who knows me knows that golf is one of my main hobbies. And it's a huge treat to be able to speak with Rob Labritz as he embarks on his first season on the PGA Champions Tour. In addition to playing on the Senior Tour this year, Rob is the Director of Golf at the Glen Arbor Golf Club in Bedford Hills, New York. He's one of the top PGA playing professionals in the United States. He won the 2022 PGA Tour Champions Q School to reach the Senior Tour. Rob's finished as the low PGA professional twice at the PGA Championship and his holeout at the 2013 Professional National Championship was the number one top play on SportsCenter. In this episode, Rob tells us about the role of sacrifice and what it takes to perform well under maximum pressure. Rob talks about his mindset during his Q School win and exactly what he was thinking and feeling on the final hole as he was about to achieve his lifelong dream. We get unique insight into his golf process and a behind-the-scenes look at the scheduling and logistics that go into being a tour pro. Finally, we dive into some golf nerddom as we talk about the state of the game, some favorite courses, and the role of power from John Daly to Tiger Woods to Bryson DeChambeau in the sport's future. For the hardcore player or golf fan or anyone interested in what happens between the ears at the highest levels of performance, this is a terrific listen. Welcome aboard, Rob. Frazier, nice to be with you. I appreciate the time. I appreciate you being on. Congratulations. I am going to try in our opening, which I talked about a little bit, to describe the enormity of what you've accomplished here in making the Senior PGA Tour. Has it sunk in yet? I think it has. It'll probably sink in when I peg it the first week in the event, but leading up to the event starts on the 16th or 18th. I've been just working on my game, so that's the part that's been sinking in. I've put so much more time in my game the last three or four weeks because I have to. You're competing against legends. That by itself has got to be stunning. You're there with the Ernie Elses and the Bernard Longers and the Jim Furicks, and you've probably played with them a little bit, maybe through the PGA Championship experience that you've had, but you're on equal footing with them in many ways. I don't look at it as playing against them. I look at it as playing against the golf courses. That's the way I've always approached my tournaments. Because if you try to get yourself into when I play in PGA Championships, you think about playing the Tiger Woods and all those guys, it's just overwhelming. So if you keep it simpler... I'm hitting the ball the same way they are on the golf course, trying to get it in the hole, the least amount of strokes as possible. The men don't intimidate me at all because we all put our pants on the same way. We all take showers. We all shave, although I got to catch up on my shaving. It's one of those things where you can set your mind into just putting yourself in playing good golf and not really against all the legends. Whenever I try to talk to people about how high-end golf actually works, talk about how unbelievably different and better the pros are compared to scratch golfers and how many levels of awesome they are above that. When you think about things, how did you know that you had the game for it? And then what was the process for qualifying? Meaning, how did you get to that decision where you said, you know, okay, I've got what it takes, and then I'm going to go through the process to get to this age 50 where I can get on the senior tour and really show my stuff? The process started about probably 16 years ago now. In 2005, when I left the Canadian tour and I took the director of golf position at Glen Arbor, I always put the job on the forefront. When I left the Canadian tour full-time, I was kind of going through a bad marriage. I knew that was coming, so I wanted to settle myself to be around with my son. 
in that time, I never lost the passion or the desire to get better. And it was always just a time issue. As you're a director of golf at a club, you coach a lot, you have meetings, you're running club. Of course, it's a brand new club, so it was a high-end private place. My time was put into meetings and making sure the members were happy and coaching people and making sure that people had a great golf experience when they came to Glen Arbor. But before that, in the beginning of the mornings and then the evenings and then sprinkled in during the day, I would always find time to practice. I always kept it in my mind at the forefront that I wanted to play full-time for a few more years. And the Champions Tour was such a great goal and object for me to focus on. It kept me healthy. I worked out daily. It kept me focused. I always wanted to make sure that my golf game stayed as sharp as I could as a club pro. And then the process of the two weeks of qualifying, there's two four-round tournaments that I had to finish. in the first one was the top 14, I believe. And then the second one was finishing the top five. And I was playing against all the other guys who were trying to just better their status. It's an emotional thing. It's a mental focus thing. And all the PGA championships and all the tournaments that I've played in one for the past years gave me the confidence to be able to know that my golf game stacked up against the best players in the world. Because when I competed with them in the PGA championships, there wasn't that big of a difference. There isn't that big of a difference, but then there's a huge difference because these guys are, it's almost like a quarter stroke per round, it seems to me, is the difference between either making the cut and not making it or top 10 and not top 10 and then top two and not top two and then winning and not winning. When you look at that and you break your game down, What are your strengths that you always look at and say, okay, I've got this, I'm working on these weaknesses, but where do you feel the most confidence in your game when it gets tough and you're trying to get the ball in the hole as fast as possible? My strengths lie in, first of all, my ball striking was very good. I've always been a good ball striker. I can hit a lot of fairways and a lot of greens. So that portion of my game, which people consider the hardest, it was the strength of my game. I wasn't a great putter and chipper. I was a very streaky putter and chipper and pitcher. I knew that portion of my game had to improve period. I mean, I was good. Don't get me wrong. Here I am qualifying for majors and winning state opens and stuff, but I knew deep down that it wasn't where I wanted it to be. So I sought out some help and really focused my efforts on my putting and my chipping and my pitching. And over the last probably God, almost a year now, all the drills that I've been doing and all the preparation that I've been doing on the short game came to fruition in the later part of the year. And my hat's off to David Orr, who I took a putting lesson from and it just took off. The lesson that he gave me was a confidence builder, and then it just started equaling and making more putts. Once that starts happening, you start shooting low scores, you start seeing, like you in business, you start seeing those little nuances where you can maybe pick up another, like you said, a quarter of a shot here. Or instead of hitting it to five feet, you're hitting it to three feet. Or instead of having one three-putt around, you're having no three-putts around. Those little things were the nuances that allowed me to play better, and now I have more time to practice, to put on the game. So I won't let those areas of my game ever falter again. In my world, where we're talking about people trying to keep wealth up and so on, the concept of compound interest, when you're able to put these savings in the bank and let it work for you, then you're able to work on different things and different strengths, and then it compounds and then creates a little bit better return over time. It sounds like that's a little bit what you're trying to do. And then now that you've got more time to be able to focus on the weaknesses or maybe amplify your strengths a little bit, that that may bring the average strokes down even more. Yeah, that's exactly the plan. So now instead of coaching six or seven hours a day and going to a staff meeting, I'll spend an extra hour in the gym. I'll spend an extra hour or two putting, chipping. It's the time things that you can really start to focus in on and really start to hone specific parts of your game to make it better and save those quarter shots, which has been the hugest part for me. So golf is between the ears a lot of time and you've got to 
keep it together and perform under maximum stress. So fast forward to the final stage of Q school to get you to the tour. How do you manage the enormity of what you're doing? And you know the importance of every shot. You know the importance of what you're trying to do. What steps did you take to compartmentalize that or use it to either get to that elevated level of calm where you could perform or the adrenaline you needed to stay focused and excel? I have this rule, which I've worked on for the past 20 years or so. It's called the 40-second rule for me, a 40-second rule, where I don't pay much attention to things until I get to my golf ball. I'm very relaxed out in the golf course. Golf is stressful when you're playing in these situations. And two weeks of Q school was very stressful, obviously. If you're having a stressful day, you've got to find ways, first of all, to calm yourself down and perform under pressure, obviously. So that 40-second rule was really big for me. I give myself 40 seconds for every shot to get up to the ball, look at my lie, pick my club, feel the wind, do all that stuff. And then once I hit the shot and it lands, I don't ever react. If I hit it out of bounds, if I hit it to two feet, if I hit it in the hole, I mean, I might react if I hit it in the hole. But generally, if you hit a shot, you just go on because you have to focus all your time on that next shot again. Being able to compartmentalize the adrenaline and the focus and the distraction in some ways, and just to be able to channel all of that into usable energy as opposed to unusable energy or counterproductive energy, that to me is where I'm fascinated with the people who operate at that level. It's one of those things where you don't really think about that. You just prepare yourself to play good golf. Sure, I'm nervous. I was nervous on every shot out there. Johnny Miller said that too in his career. He was nervous on every shot. I'm nervous on every shot, but it doesn't mean that because you're nervous, you're not going to perform. Nervousness is a state in your body where you're heightened and your adrenaline might be up, your endorphins might be firing a little bit more, but it doesn't mean you're going to fail. Nervousness means that you're in a state where you can actually focus your mental power even farther and harder on a certain task at hand. I'm a big breather. I love to breathe. I love to calm myself by breathing. I'm a big meditator. I love to meditate. So those things really help me when I'm out there playing against the guys and trying to shoot low scores, those are the things that really helped me just maintain my focus and maintain my focus on each shot. I can't say that enough. You have to have a 100% focus level on each shot. And if you don't do that, you're not going to perform at the level that you need to perform. And it took me, you know, I'm 50 years old now. This is not something that just happens. Over all the years that I've been practicing and playing, I've focused on making sure that I can pull these shots off when I am nervous. I've hit shots when I'm not ready. That's not a good thing. I always make sure that I hit a shot now when I'm ready. And the pressure is self-inflicted. Whatever you think you're going to do, Frazier, as you know, if you say, oh, I'm going to be really poor. Okay, what are you going to do? You're going to be really poor. <laughs> if you say, okay, well, I want to work out. I'm going to get myself stronger. Well, you're going to work out and you're going to get yourself stronger as long as you stick with it. So it's a state of mind. How do you balance between playing golf swing versus playing golf? I know a lot of people, and this isn't just golf, they build these processes and they go through massive amount of checklists and get ready to pull the trigger, but then you can get to paralysis by analysis. And then there are people who close their eyes and go, and sometimes you lose the benefits of process. How do you balance between that? It comes in with your practice. Golf is a funny game. It's the only sport that you practice on the field that you don't play. So you're on the range, you're on the putting green. I play mental games with myself. I don't ever just stand there and hit balls unless I really need to work on something. My swing over 50 years is my swing now. I can make some alterations and stuff like that. The pattern is set in my brain. What you have to do with that focus then is you have to play golf when you're practicing like you're playing on the golf course. So you have to feel like you're putting yourself in these situations, like you're in a pressure-filled situation, like you're 
I've played my brain so many times myself winning Q score. I've played myself and my brain when I'm hitting on the range, winning the PGA Championship or winning State Open. Now, I haven't won any PGA Championships yet, <laughs> but I've won some State Opens and Q school. So if you can put yourself in those situations and prepare yourself, then when you're in that situation, it doesn't feel like you're in that situation for the first time. So you've already been there. You've already seen the result. So you can just go ahead and pull the trigger and let your sort of your talent fly. I'm not a guy who is a grinder on my golf swing. I'll make sure it's good, but I want to work on my ball flights. I want to see the ball cut. I want to see it draw. I want to see it go high. I want to see it go low. I want to see all of that sort of thing. And, and when I get in the golf course, that's what I do. You can't really think golf swing out there when you're doing those type of shots. You're trying to think more club face and direction and starting lines and all that stuff. And then once you hit it, then you're done and you go find it and you hit it again. We've talked about the general concepts of balancing your emotions and maintaining focus. Now, that's all well and good. Let's take you back to the 18th hole of your last round to get through Q school and to win and get on the senior tour. What are you thinking on the tee with all of that in front of you? I was nervous, really nervous. Okay. And the 18th hole at TPC Tampa Bay is a par four, about 460 yards with water all down the right hand side and bunkers all down the left, slight dog leg to the right. During the week, I was playing good golf. I had control of my ball flight, had control of my putter, and I was hitting this nice little cut driver off 18 all week. So when I was in that situation, I knew where I stood, found out where I stood at 16. I knew I had a lead going into the hole, and I knew that I was very clear of maintaining the score to finish in the top five to get my card. I felt some sort of relief in that situation. And again, I'm not the type of guy who says, oh my goodness, I'm going to stand here and there's water to the right. I hope I don't hit it to the right. I'm like, no, I'm going to hit my nice little cut driver off 18 like I did for the first three days. I'll leave myself a little wedge in the green and hit it up to the hole. Now, I changed my philosophy a little bit. I hit three wood and hooked it a little bit and went by a bunker. <laughs> so, you know, it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, don't go right. Just make sure if anything, you go on the bunker left, it's fine. I didn't hit it very good. It was a little hook down the left-hand side. I had, I think, 185 yards to the flag and 150 to the front. I was on a little bit of a downslope in the rough, a little bit downwind, again, water right. And I just took a nine iron. Just get to the front edge of the green and you can two putt, three putt, whatever, and still come away with the victory. And I smoked this nine iron and it flew well past the flag. It hit on the back edge of the green. I flew it 190 yards from all the adrenaline, <laughs> flew it over the green 20 yards. And I turned to my caddy when I hit the shot and I said, is there water over the green? Because <laughs> I, you know, I had no idea they hit it over that green. He's like, I don't think so where you hit it. Went over to the shot. And I still had 20 yards over the green coming back to a back pin off a downhill lie in the fluffy rough and the ball sitting up. So a lot of things could have happened on that shot. But I worked with Bill Davis, my instructor, a week before, and we did a lot of shots around the greens and gave me some things to think about. 20-yard shot, hit it up there, landed on the back edge of the green, rolled past the flag about 10 feet and made the putt. So it was one of those things where you just put yourself in that 40 seconds again. I have that 40-second rule where, okay, you hit the shot, it went over the green. All right, I turned to Todd. I said, do you know if there's water over the green? He said, I don't know. I forgot about it. I wasn't driving up to the green or walking up to the green, stressing out over, oh, is it in the water? Calm yourself down. Wherever it is, it is. You can't change it from the fairway. <laughs> so when I got over and I saw the green and saw the ball, it was dry. I was like, okay, you're good. You can go ahead and hit the shot that you wanted and, and got up and down and the rest is history. So while I was following this on the internet, I saw that you won and I tried to put myself in your shoes a little bit. So I've been lucky enough to have won my club championship twice. The second time I won on the 36th hole, which was great drive, put it to four feet and won. And I remember the emotions I felt with that. And I had this very serene calm the whole way up. 
I mean, I was nervous too, but it was channeled correctly. The other emotion that I superimposed onto your experience was when I went skydiving. And the first time I did it, you fall and then you expect to land on something after a second or two and you don't. And the amount of adrenaline that has been built up in your system as you're going up in the plane just releases immediately. And you get this huge emotional deflation. It's not bad deflation. It's just like a balloon rapidly exhaling in many ways. And I was like, I bet there's some of that in what Rob's feeling right now. Maybe take us through what happened when that final putt sank and that rush. So I have skydived as well, <laughs> twice. So I know the feeling of when you land on the ground after that first jump, you feel like you can accomplish anything because you just jumped out of a perfectly good plane. <laughs> you fell 14,000 feet and you landed on the ground and here you are. When that putt went in, yeah, I mean, I'm still emotionally tied to it. It's crazy. I'm an emotional guy, right? I've worked my entire life for that point. And when it went in, I just, I just kind of laughed and giggled to myself. And I gave myself a pat on the back and I said, you did it. And when I walked off the green, there was so many of my friends that came out to watch and support from college and members and walks of life. And everybody was so thrilled that I saw all of the joy on their faces. And when you're in the moment, I don't even know how to explain it. You're in the moment, you're trying to get your stuff done, you're doing your thing, you're 40 seconds. But when you finally get that goal done, it's a sense of relief. I felt like there was a huge weight that just lifted off my shoulders. I felt a calmness and then I just felt this joy come over me. And then I thought about my wife. I have a friend, Lewis Kelly, who gave me a big hug and he said, sacrifice. And as soon as he said sacrifice, I thought about my family and my wife. And my wife, for all the times that she's like, honey, are you coming home for dinner? No, honey, I'm going to be practicing for the next three hours till dark. So I come home to a cold meal. My daughter's excited to see me. I walk in the door. You know, you think about all those times that you put in all those extra hours and you spent in a selfish game, a selfish talent of getting yourself better. And you spend time away from your family. That was the biggest thing for me. Because when I called her, my wife is such a supportive woman. She's my yin to my yang. She completes me. It's this great partnership that we have. So when I called her, she was more excited than I was. because She was following along like everybody else. And just to hear her voice, that was one of the most emotional times in my life. Like when my kids were being born. People ask me all the time, well, family's got to be most important. I found golf. Golf is my first true love. And I hate to say this, it sounds so terrible, but I'm going to say it because it's the truth. Golf's my first true love. And I've never divorced golf. I've always grinded. It's an obsession. It's this weird thing, as every golfer knows. It's just one of these weird things that it grabs you. And you spend all this extra time working on it and sacrificing here and sacrificing there. For me, it was I wanted to reach one of the big stages. So to have all of that stuff come to fruition, it was just a moment in time, which I'll never forget. And emotionally, when you just talked about it, it brought me back there. So I know how tired I am to that moment forever. And I'm forever grateful for God, for my family, for everything, for all the time and hard work, for all the team at Glen Arbor, my friends, family, everybody that I'm surrounded with was kind of supporting me trying to get this done. And when that happens, you just feel a rush of emotion. That's what it was. Totally awesome. I've followed the story and I've watched it. It doesn't get old as a fan watching this, and so it's a thrill to hear about it face-to-face here. Okay, so you've made it. You've got the card, full status, which comes with its own benefits. Logistically, it's sort of an all-or-nothing thing. If you don't make it, you go back to your life, probably at Glen Arbor or whatever else you had planned. But now you're on, and you've got to get the next year planned out. How does that look? There's sort of a general schedule. You have an idea what the tournaments are, but 
you got to put the pieces in place and get to places and have a caddy ready and make sure you stay sharp and fit and make sure your family still remembers who you are and all that stuff. How do you go through that? Do you have help? And I assume you do, but what does that look like for the uninitiated? When it first happened, December 10th, when that happened, I mean, obviously I talked to the PGA Tour Champions guys and I said, what does this mean? So they were like, well, it's one Q school, you're in every event. And I was like, every event? And they're like, yeah, you're in every event. And I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is kind of cool. So I pulled up the schedule on my phone and I looked at it and I said, oh my goodness, wow, there's 24 events that I get to play in next year. <laughs> I said, this is kind of cool. I turned to my caddy, Todd. I said, are you ready? He goes, 100%. Todd's been with me. Todd Luigi, my caddy, has been with me for 12 years. He's a good friend and he's a retired police officer. And he's been with me in all my Met section stuff for the last 12 years. So he was ready. Then it was the thing of, okay, so how do I pay for all this? How does all this work? We figured it out. I've had friends who've played the tour. So I made a few phone calls, asked out what I needed to do and just settled down with the club. Club said, well, what's your plan? I had talked about it before with them. And I said, if I finish in the top five, I'll probably get in 12 events or so. So I can still do my duties as the director of golf and play some high-level golf. But this now changed. Since I won, I get more events, almost double the amount of events. So my focus is now just playing good golf. So I had to figure out, first of all, I haven't played full-time since the Canadian Tour 2005. So I looked at the schedule. I plan on playing a full schedule. I'm never going to be fully exempt on the tour. So I have to have starts and make money to retain my status and finish in that top 36. So I've got to go on this grind of just playing event after event after event. But I also have to let my body and my mind tell me when I need to take time off now. I've gotten tired from golf, from being the director of golf and coaching and all the energy that I've given to other people. And I know when I need to take time off when that hits me. But for practicing and playing, it's a little different because now I'll be working out I'll be doing a lot more meditation. I'll be working on my game and then traveling. So I play three tournaments in a row. We go from Naples to Tucson to Newport Beach, California. So I'm going to let those first three weeks be a good governor or pace car for me, so to speak, to see how my body's reacting, how my brain's reacting, how I feel after that third week of grinding and playing two pro-ams and three round tournaments. So I'm just going to let the first three weeks be my dictator of how I'm going to go about the rest of the season. I've got some great advice from some of the Champions Tour guys on how to travel and where to stay. And they said, you know, that's the most important thing to be comfortable when you're out there, just to be rested and relaxed. So the first three weeks are going to be the biggest thing for me. And I'll learn a lot in those three weeks to see what I'll have to do going forward for the rest of the year. One thing that I've always wondered is you're playing, you're practicing, you've got pro-ams, which are probably not helpful in terms of staying sharp. But how do the PGA Tour guys go? If the senior tournaments are three rounds and the PGA Tour events are four rounds, generally speaking, plus they've got another pro-am event, et cetera, that's a lot of golf. And I bristle when I have friends who say, oh, golf's not a sport, it's a game. I'm like, you have no idea. Why don't you come walk Beth Page Black with me sometime without your clubs and see how you do? I guess that's part of the experiment is not only how do you stay fit and rested, but how do you stay sharp or even get better? And maybe part of the getting better is you play under the crucible of tournament conditions and you just elevate. Again, it's going to be an adjustment period. I know that I have some pro-ams that I have to play in one or two a week now. So I'll be playing four or five rounds a week. Monday will generally be my travel day. So I may be able to do a light day, do the travel, whatever I need to do, get to the golf course, maybe chip and putt a little bit, obviously work out and do some meditation. Tuesday will be a practice round day. So I'll be able to, again, just check out the golf course, so to speak. I'm not a big 
grinder when I'm out there checking out the golf course. I'm really just seeing what the golf course has to offer for me. I'm not working on my swing. I'm not working on my game. I'm working on learning the golf course. The pro-ams, I actually enjoy. I enjoy playing pro-ams with any type of players, good, bad. I'm a people person. I like to talk to people. I like to find out what their walks of life are. So I'm looking forward to that. And then when you play the Champions Tour, except for in the majors, there's no cut. So I'll play probably Wednesday Pro-Am, Thursday Pro-Am, and then the tournament's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it's really just managing my short game, managing my energy levels, and then managing my workouts and my food. Those are the most important things that I'll be focusing on when I'm out there. So it's not going to be worrying about staff meetings or coaching and all that other things. It'll be a little bit more specific. And I think with those four or five buckets, I'll be able to maintain my structure and my focus. I'm a big believer in rest, sleep. I like to go to bed early. I'm not a late guy. I like to get up early. I like to start my day by working out and all that good stuff. So I'm just going to continue that, see where it takes me, and then make some adjustments accordingly. Who are you excited to play with out there that maybe you haven't played with yet? Everybody. There's not one person I'm not excited to play with out there. <laughs> I know I'm breaking into a club that these guys have known each other for years, and I'm an outsider coming in. I want to go out there and just get to know the golf courses. I want to get to know my body and how I'm going to react to all this stuff. But I'm looking forward to playing with everybody to play with me and just getting to know some of the guys out there and trying to see what I can do against the best players on the planet. So you looked at the schedule and you see the different events. Are there any courses that leapt out at you that you said, oh, you know what? I haven't played this. I'm excited to do that. Everyone. I'm one of those guys who every golf course that I play, I'm excited I get up in the morning, if I'm playing public track, if I'm playing a private golf course, it doesn't matter to me. It's still playing golf for four rounds, and I get excited either way. The only one I think I've played on the schedule, to be honest with you, is Sock and Ballot, and that's the U.S. Senior Open. It's an event I'm going to have to either qualify for through Schwab Cup points or money or just have to go through the qualifying process. That's really the only one that I know, (laughs) to be honest with you. The other ones are just going to be all brand new events, so give it a shot. So over the course of your career, you've played a bunch of great places. What have been your favorites? There's so many. Are you talking tournament rounds or are you just talking regular rounds? I guess I'd group it into two sets. The bucket list courses that everyone loves and maybe your opinion on some of the ones you played that you really enjoyed. And then maybe those special courses that you have a soft spot for. I play out of Bedford and I love the course and I tell people it's equal parts enough difficulty to keep it interesting every round, but it's enjoyable and you wouldn't put it up against Augusta or National or Cypress or anything like that from a pure quality standpoint, but it's got its charms and I'm sure you've got those types as well in your system. So Glen Arbor is obviously one of my favorite. I play there day in and day out for the past 22 years and the golf course is in such pristine shape under the direction of Joe Geekus now and his team that Really enjoy playing that place. Some of the other ones that I played that obviously are just great golf courses. I played Augusta. I played Shinnecock. I played National. I played Pine Valley. I played Cypress. All those, I played Whistling Straits. All those top courses that you know about and you think about, wow, these are playing. They are. They're all fabulous. Back page, fabulous. On the other side of it, there's two places that I find pretty special. And I played once, actually twice. I played a place in Galena, Ohio called the Double Eagle Club in Galena, Ohio. I don't know if you've ever played there really special place. This was probably 10 years ago. It was the best conditioned golf course I've ever stepped foot on. And then Sand Hills in Nebraska, pretty awesome. There's not many courses that I haven't played. And if I'm forgetting some of them out there, Sabonic's awesome, National. I mean, all the East End golf course on Long Island, Wingfoot, I can't leave Wingfoot out, Quaker Ridge, all those great spots. And Lost Tree. The more that I sit here and think about it, the more I'm going to rattle off golf courses to you. <laughs> <laughs> it turns into an exercise of reaching for the top 100 list somewhere. <laughs> and the ones that your brain remembers. It's so funny. 
we'll end on a couple of dorky golf questions. You're a teaching pro and have done that for a long time and director of golf. I look at somebody like Bryson DeChambeau way, way back in time before that, John Daly, two guys for whom power changed the sport in many ways. And of course, Tiger in between, who was the combination of power and greatness in all phases of the game. Do you look at Bryson and his ascent and the way he thinks about the game? Has that changed the methodologies that are taught to the rank and file yet? Or are there going to be concepts that never quite translate? God, you know, golf's such an individual game that each person finds their niche. And I don't know Bryson. I've never had a conversation with him. I've never played with him. From what I've seen, obviously, he's taken his golf game to an extremely powerful level. Now, I know from being a professional golfer that when you make changes like that, there's things that change in your golf swing. Your swing goes from, I'm a very precise player. I'm still pretty long for 50. I can hit it over 300 yards, but I've always tried to be super precise. I've never tried to be that power guy. I know going forward that I'm sure he's inspired a lot of teachers, especially young, new ones coming up, and a lot of golfers that believe that power is going to be an extremely important part of the game. I see a lot of these young, powerful guys come out now that I think there was a 6'7 guy the other day. I don't remember. He played in his first tour event. He hits the ball 400 yards. If you look at what he shot, I think he finished over par for 36 holes. So power is great, but you still need to hone it in. Back when I was in my 30s, I hit the ball so far sometimes that I could only hit three wood off the tee. So the driver was even out of my hand. You hit it through fairways on par fives, and it just became a different way to manage yourself around the golf course. If you hit the ball really long, one of my best friends, Fast Eddie Fernandez, 2018 World Long Drive champ, went to elementary school with four houses down from each other. He made it to finals to have a champion's to a few school. Hits the ball 380, 400 yards. But, you know, he struggles a little bit with the direction. When you're swinging so hard, the, those little mistakes that faces another half a degree or degree open at 140 miles an hour, <laughs> it's going to make the ball go offline. So it's one of those things where you have to be even more precise with your movements if you're swinging that hard, in my opinion. Because any sort of fluctuation from the norm, it's going to cause the ball to go farther offline because there's more speed, more spin attached. The mistakes are magnified with that clubhead speed. But then by the same token, if you're hitting shots from 100 yards versus 170 yards, there's an advantage to that. 100%. So there's give and take for both of that being long. Long is great if you can control and you're hitting it straight. Bryson won the U.S. Open. Wingfoot, he was ripping straight. I mean, this dude was ripping the golf ball straight. It was awesome to watch. And he had flip wedges in, which is why I won. He just totally beat that golf course to a pulp, which is one of the hardest golf courses around. So when you're on, you're going to do things like that. But when you're off, that's not going to happen. We'll wind up here. I could absorb your morning for many hours, peering into your mind on all sorts of golf questions. But over the course of your career, I would have said before December 10th that maybe the most memorable shot would be your hole out to make the PGA Championship the one year. Is that still your favorite shot or do you have another one that dominates your mind? Wow, that's a good question. I do draw on that 95-yard shot a lot when I'm 95 yards. I didn't hole out. Golf's a game of confidence, so there's a lot of other shots that I've, I've played over time and under stressful situations that I do draw from. There's shots that I've hit that you might even think don't mean anything just in the middle of a round or a good three wood that you hit on a par five to like 20 feet or something, good three iron that you hit over a tree. There's a lot of shots that I can draw from, but that was another emotional week because my wife was in the hospital. You know, She was eight months pregnant. We were out in Oregon and there a lot of emotion going on there. So it seems like when there's a lot of turmoil, it seems like I pull off these crazy shots when there's turmoil. 
here I am trying to make my life nice and calm, but when the turmoil comes, it's when I play better. Go figure it out. I'd still say that's a great one. Kind of drawn a blank, Frazier, to be honest with you. There's well, it's so many good shots. That's a good problem to have. It'd be one thing if you're combing the memory banks and you're going, oh, I'm coming up empty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're at Beth Page during my 2016 win there from the first cut of rough with the wind going hard left to right from 170 yards into my face left to right to like 20 feet. That's one of the ones I always draw on. There's so many little ones that you can kind of just, oh, I remember that. Those ones that give you confidence, those are the ones you want to draw to the forefront of your memory. Terrific. Well, I will leave you with that. Thank you very much. How do we stay in touch with you and follow your progress on tour? Yeah, you can follow me through Instagram, Rob Lippert's Golf. You can follow me through Twitter, Rob Lippert's Golf. You can follow me through any social media channels, LinkedIn. I'm on pretty much every social media channel. I'm not really on TikTok. I think Instagram would probably be the best one. And then my website, we're going to try to do some things with my website to maybe keep it updated. I haven't updated it in a while. Or just reach out to me, rob at robblebritz.com. Shoot me an email. Happy to answer any questions. It might take me a day or two to get back to you, but happy to talk to people. And yeah, follow social media channels. Rob, thank you very much. I'll put the links on the show notes so people can get to them quickly. This has been a huge treat for me, and I am manifesting huge success for you this year. So go out there and do it. Frazier, I appreciate the time. Great to talk to you. Great to see your face and keep it up, man. I enjoy listening to your podcast. Excellent. Talk soon. You got it, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.